Today's reading is Amos chapter 5, verses 10 through 24. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I was just enjoying a delicious sip of a five-watt coffee um, before starting my sermon this morning. Mmm. Wow, it tastes so good. Oh, okay. So uh, one of my favorite sayings, absolutely one of my favorite sayings, and it's uh, attributed to Pablo Picasso. Pretty sure he never actually said it. It's one of those Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott type of, of quotes that I'm going to throw out here now. But it, you know, like you hear a good quote and you're like, well, it sounds good, but if someone like famous and impressive said it, then it sounds even more authoritative other than just being a good bit of folk wisdom. But I'm just going to go with it. So Pablo Picasso once said, uh, good artists copy, great artists steal. I think we can uh, kind of tweak that for my own purposes this morning. Good preachers copy, great preachers steal. At least that's what I'm telling myself this morning, um, as this sermon was inspired by a talk that was given by the Reverend Dr. Gabriel Salguero uh, at the Formed for Justice conference that was put on by Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City in November of 2018. And so I just want to offer this all as a, as a disclaimer to say that um, this talk is inspired by and borrows liberally, one could say, 
from the talk given by Dr. Saul Guerra. And he, he's a Pentecostal preacher um, who serves at a church in, in Orlando, uh, Florida, but he also worked for a time at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary where I had uh, the opportunity to attend seminary. Our paths did not cross. He came right after, uh, right after I did. But, but, but all that to say, I want to give credit where it is due. And I also want to point you to um, the entire Formed for Justice conference that was put on at Redeemer. If you go to gospelinlife.com, that's a Redeemer's Clearinghouse for all of, of their sermons and resources. You can get the entire conference, uh, which originally was $26 with all the videos and the, the MP3s of the talks. You can download that for free. There are another, Redeemer's another one of those places where they are making these resources available for free. And so, uh, you know, you can hear how much I stole from him uh, this morning for yourself. So gospelinlife.com. And if while you're there, uh, you want to give me an early Christmas present, which is uh, you can get all of Tim Keller's sermons that he gave over the course of his 30-year ministry for $1,600, the low, pl- the low price of $1,600. If you want to give that as an early Christmas present to me, I'll share it with Matt too. Um, uh, and you can even give it anonymously, and I will not complain if you do that. All right, so li- you can listen to Dr. Salguero for yourself. Any of my best lines that I did this morning, I probably stole from him, which is evidence of the fact that I am a great preacher. My theft is not that I'm a hack or a plagiarizer. It's that I'm a great preaching artist. That's what I'm telling myself this morning. All right, and so his talk was about biblical images for justice. And so this really builds on what I said a couple of weeks ago as I talked about, you know, post uh, the murder of George Floyd. I think it's important as we hear cries and calls for justice rising up in, in society and there's this kind of awakening taking place that, that we see what Scripture has to say about justice because it has so much to say. You know, we're not sort of, uh, sort of left stammering around or going, you know, see, um, uh, the Bible is relevant to this too. No, 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 no. So much of, of our understanding, our cultural understanding of justice has actually been shaped already by what Scripture has to say. And so two weeks ago, um, I, I looked at uh, kind of biblical definitions of justice. And this morning, I, I want to look at biblical images for justice. I want us to look first, we can see our passage from, from Amos. And, and this, Amos 5.24, along with Micah 6.8, these are probably the two most famous, you know, justice passages in the entire Bible. Micah 6.8, you know, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What is that to, to, to do? Uh, love, mercy, do justice, walk humbly with your God. And then here we get Amos 5.24, you know, let, 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 let justice roll down like, like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And that in and of itself is an image for justice. You know, what is justice like? It's, it's like a wide, mighty river. And, and it's like a huge, cascading waterfall. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, this is what Amos is picturing, God's desire for justice and righteousness being like here. Now quickly, just, just a word about these words. Righteousness and, and justice, or justice and righteousness. Uh, mishpat and tzedakah, as they're rendered in Hebrew. And so justice, mishpat, is what you might call right actions. And righteousness, uh, tzedakah, that, that's the right ethos. And so a judge should execute justice, mishpat, in his or her decisions. And he or she should also be righteous, tzedakah, in character. And so true justice then, as we look at it in Scripture, it entails both right action and, and, and right internal character. 
And, and, and as we see so many times with so many things when we're studying Scripture, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And that's sometimes something we struggle with as Christians, is holding two important things together and not saying that one thing is more important than the other, but both things are important. Justice and righteousness are a both-and. And the church gets, gets in trouble when it focuses on just one or the other. Right? The stereotype is that liberal or progressive churches, they're going to focus on justice as external actions while neglecting our internal state. And then the opposite is true. We're going to say that, that theologically conservative churches are going to focus on personal righteousness and, and, and internal character at the expense of, of external actions for justice. Now, thanks be to God, we don't have to pick to kind of riff on something that the kids are fond of saying these days, you know, get you a God who can do both justice and righteousness, mishpat and zedekah. In the book of Amos, it's one that's all about justice. Amos was, was a shepherd, and he was a shepherd whom God called to be a prophet. That's a rare combination. You know, usually we think of people being shepherds, which, guess what, the, the, the title for a pastor, that just comes from, you know, being pastoral, that comes from the, the world of shepherding. And, and so we think of people as either shepherds or prophets. And keep in mind now, when I'm talking about prophets, the main job of a biblical prophet was not to be Nostradamus and, and, and predicting the future. It wasn't to, you know, foretell, but actually to forthtell. It was to speak God's word, God's urgent word, into what was an already incredibly broken situation. To speak God's warning about the consequences of, 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 of your actions. And, and then prophets also did speak words of, of hope and redemption and rescue once God's people had tasted the bitter fruits of their disobedience. And so Amos, the book of Amos, it shows us that God's people need both pastors and prophets. They need prophets to speak God's word to them in all of its challenge and with all of its sharp edges. And God's people need pastors who will care for them. God's people need, need leaders with a prophet's passion. And they need pastors with a shepherd's compassion. Now, Amos, you know, he kind of embodied this dual vocation. And, and, and just as he kind of lived on the edge between pastor and prophet, he also lived on the edge between the northern kingdom of Israel and, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And God called him to be a prophet to the northern kingdom in the years leading up to what would eventually amount to its destruction at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And Amos's message to, to Israel, to the northern kingdom, was that God was very angry because as a nation, it had become rife with injustice, specifically as it concerned how its leaders were treating the poor and the needy. This was a time when, when actually things, you know, happy days were here again. Things were going really well. The, the northern kingdom of Israel, it, it was prosperous. Right? People were getting, getting rich. They were successful. They were powerful. But, but, but instead of, of kind of sharing the wealth, as, as the Old Testament law always talks about. The elites were, were using their wealth as leverage to extract even more and more wealth from the poor through a kind of, you know, debt peonage or, or sharecropping system. Rents were high, taxes 
were high and, and things were so bad. There was so much destitution and poverty that people were even selling themselves or they were selling their family members into debt slavery. And to add insult to injury, the court system, which was at least supposed to provide some sort of recourse to the most poor and desperate in society, was totally corrupt. Justice was being bought and sold to the highest bidder. And so when we understand that context, we can understand the force of Amos' words and God's utter disgust and total contempt for Israel's worship. Right? Israel's leaders, they were acting like, you know, saints and, and choir boys on Sundays. And then living like the mafia Monday through Saturday. And so it's into that situation that Amos declares God's desire and commandment that if Israel wants to avert an utter catastrophe, that will be the day of the Lord, as he calls it. If they want to avoid that, then justice needed to go from what wasn't even a trickle to a flood from a dry riverbed to, to an ever-flowing stream. And so now, brothers and sisters, I, I want us to understand some of the other biblical images for justice. And I want us to listen, not just with our, with our ears, but, but, but our imaginations as well, to, to see what God has to say. Because I hope, you know, these last several weeks have made it, you know, more than abundantly clear that, that, that justice and righteousness, these are not, you know, secondary themes in Scripture. You know, we aren't just trying to capture the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. These aren't just some, you know, lib talking points that I feel like I need to throw out. But that justice is at the heart of who God is, what God does, what God cares about. And so if we say that we love God, with our whole heart, our whole mind, all our strength, all we have, all we are, then we've got to love his vision of justice too. So what are these images of justice that we see in the Bible? Well, first we see that justice is a calling. Justice is what we're asking for. As Mad said in his prayer earlier, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, justice is God calling us to live under his rule and his reign to seek for that rule and that reign to be manifested in our midst. St. Paul says uh, that the kingdom of God is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom, it's calling us to fresh endeavors, new relationships, dignity, equality, and working for the flourishing of our fellow human beings who bear the image and likeness of God and who just as importantly, Jesus came and lived and died and rose again to save. Justice is a calling. Justice is, is work. Justice isn't just a dream. It isn't just an ideal. It isn't just, you know, coming up with the correct definition like I think I did two weeks ago so I can say that I can put that in my head and when, and when the test comes, I can write out the correct definition. No, 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 no. Justice is work. If we think about our passage uh, from, from a couple of weeks ago, Micah 6, 8, you know, this is what's good. This is what the Lord requires of us. Love, mercy, do justice, walk humbly. Those are all verbs, actions. Doing justice means doing something. It means doing something. Doing something more, a lot more, costly than posting on social media, right? It's not just enough to work for justice. You can't just be a keyboard warrior. 
We look to our brothers and sisters from the past decades and centuries, Christians who worked for justice as an example of what this looks like in practice. Justice, friends, it's work. It's hard work. It's long work. It's even boring work. You know, I think uh, of our own experience as a church. Back in, in uh, 2017, we sponsored a refugee family uh, to come and live in this country. And, I mean, that relationship has been incredible. The, the Thawa and Neblut and their kids, uh, I mean, are just such dear friends to so many of us in the congregation. Neblut last night sent me a happy Father's Day message. That's so beautiful. It's so amazing. And the reason we did this as a congregation, because if you think about the, the climate in our country at that time, you know, it was one we're saying, we don't want you. And it's to our, our great shame, the great shame of the current administration, that the already small number of refugees allowed into this country has been slashed. We wanted to do something. We wanted to welcome a family here. No, I'm not going to name names, but Katie Nordenson did a lot of hard, difficult, unrewarding work in pursuit of justice for this family. And the work of justice, it's extremely hard. It's time-consuming. It can be very discouraging and also mundane and boring. There's not a lot of dopamine hits in it because it's so much better. It's so much more satisfying than that. We see the work I'm talking about, the kind of work I'm talking about in Psalm 82. That's one of the great things I've gotten to do through praying the psalm is just see uh, this incredible treasure trove, this resource for God's people to pray. And, and so here's what it says in Psalm 82. God says to the powerful, God assembles all, all the powerful people in front of him, and he says this, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and needy and oppressed, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Do you hear those verbs? Those aren't weak and passive verbs. Those are powerful, powerful actions. Defend, uphold, rescue, deliver. Justice is work. It's hard work. Justice is, is, is righteous anger directed toward love expressed in action. All right, so we've seen that justice is a calling. Justice is work. Justice is also a song. When people sing in the Bible, they sing for God's justice. The Psalms are full of justice songs. I've I found that over the course of these past, you know, 90 plus days to be sure. The Psalms are full of justice songs. Songs where David sings for God to judge, for God to set things right, for God to vindicate the righteous and punish the wicked. In Luke, Mary sings. She sings a song when, when, when the Christ child that was growing in her belly leapt for joy when she saw her cousin Elizabeth, who herself was pregnant with John the Baptist. When they met and the Christ child jumped for joy, listen to these words from her song. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. And so justice is a song that praises God for this great reversal that's coming. If you're humble, this is a sweet, sweet song. But if you are a ruler, its words are bitter. If you're hungry, 
you're going to sing this song at the top of your lungs. But if you're rich, you'll want to rip these pages from the songbook. I mean, just listen to, to this wonderful song that was sung by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. You know, uh, <laughs> Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, these, these are often called the book of desolation because it's Isaiah telling Israel all of these bad things that are going to happen. And then Isaiah 40 comes and it's this song, it's, it's called the book of comfort. And it's this beautiful song of consolation to a people who have been sent into exile and have lost everything. And, and Handel captured it immortally in his, in his Messiah. So Isaiah 40, these people have heard these words of doom and gloom, and then comes this fresh song in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. And he goes on to sing, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. Uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. So justice is a song about, about lowering down and raising up and smoothing what is rough. It's about a great leveling to make a highway for our God. And so justice then is this incredible song that each and every person is equal if you're a mountain, you're no better than a valley. If you're a valley, you're no worse than a mountain or a hill. And, and that's the radical Judeo-Christian message of equality. Right? That's where our founding fathers got the, the idea you know, of, of those self-evident truths. That all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, it might have seemed self-evident to them. But it wasn't to other people. It wasn't to other cultures. It wasn't to other civilizations or societies. And it wasn't even self-evident enough to them that they would extend these same unalienable rights to slaves of African descent. Or indigenous people living on this continent. And so justice is, is a song that we sing until these beautiful promises, the likes of which are contained in our, in our founding documents, are kept. Right? Justice is that song that sings, lift every voice and sing, tell earth and heaven rings, rings with the harmonies of liberty. Justice is a calling, justice is work, justice is a song, justice is worship. Again, look at our passage from Amos. The problem wasn't that the Israelites had forgotten to go to church. It wasn't that they had forgotten to worship God on Sunday. And I know they were Jews and it was the Sabbath and it was Saturday, but keep with me here. It wasn't that they had forgotten to go to church and worship God on Sunday with their sacrifices and their songs and their offerings and their rituals. It's that they had forgotten to worship God the other six days of the week with how they lived. They honored God with their lips while their hearts were far from him. So being a Christian isn't about, you know, one hour a week on Sunday. It's about those other 167 hours a week, too. Because of the grave injustice that permeated Israelite society, God said to Israel, I hate, I despise your feasts. Take away your offerings. I won't accept them. Your sacrifices, I'm not even going to look at them. You can stop singing your songs because I'm not going to listen to them. Worship without justice is noxious to God. It repulses him. It, it doesn't bring him any pleasure. In fact, he hates it. In place of hypocritical worship, what does God want? 
for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Which brings me to my next image, that justice is beautiful. It's beautiful. If you live in a desert climate, water is, is everything. Water is life. Where there is water, there is life. And if you've ever, you know, visited the desert or, or lived near the desert or lived in the desert, you know, uh, you know what this is like. You know what this means. And you know what it's like when, when, when it's the dry season and then the rain comes and all of a sudden what was this, you know, dried up riverbed, maybe it was a little bit muddy or mucky, all of the sudden rain comes and it fills up quickly with, with, with this torrent flowing. You know, a dry creek bed can, can quickly overflow and become um, a mighty river in just a manner of days. And a couple weeks later, turn into a tiny trickle again. We saw that when we lived in uh, Ojai, California. The, the Ventura River was often just this dry bed with a couple of puddles in it at most, most of the year. I mean, it was something that you could easily, easily walk across and, and not even get your shoe muddy. But then when the rains would, would, would come, uh, it would become this wide, rushing river that could even carry boulders with it down the stream. You know, God is saying here in Amos that, that we can't just settle, you know, for a trickle every few years, but that we need justice to be an ever-flowing stream. Instead of a wadi, God wants the mighty Mississippi. Instead of a thimble of justice, God wants us to swim in an ocean. And in a dry, weary, brittle, you know, and deserted land, water is life, and life is beautiful. It is an oasis that draws people to it. Justice is a calling. Justice is work. Justice is a song. Justice is worship. Justice is beautiful, and justice is truth. When Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate, and, and he's the Roman procurator, so he's responsible for administering justice in Roman Palestine. And so he's questioning Jesus to find out why he's been brought before him. And, and Jesus says this to him. He says, anyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate gives that immortal response. Truth. What is Truth. We cannot have justice without the truth. And we cannot have the truth without justice. That means we need to understand the, the historical truth. And so, you know, when we think about race in our country in particular, that means understanding the many aspects of our history that are bitter and ugly that we'd rather not look at. It also means complicating simple, uh, you know, what is called, they used to call Whig history. And Whig history was, 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 was a movement in, in, in English history that said, you know what, that history is basically just the story of humanity's progress, uh, you know, from ignorance to enlightenment, you know, from, 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 uh, from, from savagery and barbarity into this new elevated status. That's Whig history, that everything is inevitably moving towards progress. Uh, you know, kind of what the Beatles said with a lot of irony, I got to admit, it's getting better a little better all the time. That's Whig history. Because the truth, historical truth, it's much messier than that. It's not a simple, you know, line of progress always moves up and to the right. It's not a simple story of the good guys versus the bad guys. 
Right? If that's what you want, you don't want the truth. You can't handle the truth. So the truth we need, it's historical truth, but it's also present truth. We have to try to understand our present moment in all of its complexity. We've got to be able to glean some kind of accurate picture of the world as it is. And that means asking questions and seeking answers and not just always looking to confirm our priors. That's one of the dangers of this moment as we go from, you know, the pandemic to, to, to uh, the killing of George Floyd and, and the uprising across this country. If you come out of this just going, well, all of my priors are already confirmed, I don't think you're actually seeking the truth of this present moment. And so when it comes to this question, you know, we've been talking about uh, of black lives, it means, you know, understanding the truth of our present situation, which is a broad-based truth, and, and this is something I've become really convicted about um, these past few weeks especially. And understanding the horrible injustice that an agent of the state, a police officer, taking a black life is, 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 is a scandal. It's scurrilous. It has a deep and horrible history in our country. And saying, you know what? We can take care of that problem and address that problem, and we still have a broader problem with how we value black life in this country. Because your risk of being killed by a police officer is infinitesimal compared with being killed by someone from your own community. Now, this often takes the form of disingenuous whataboutism, where people, you know, decry the unjust taking of black life by police. People say, come on, look at what happened to George Floyd. We cannot have this anymore. And then someone else says, well, what about black-on-black crime? And usually the person saying the whatabout is not doing so out of an earnest desire to proclaim the dignity of every black life, no matter how it's taken but as a means of shifting the conversation or shifting blame or refusing to deal with the problem. It isn't a good faith statement. And in many cases, in fact, it only furthers to devalue black life. It's a racist trope. But the truth is this, and as I said, I've become very convicted on this matter. I just listened to a 2015 book entitled Ghetto Side, written by Jill Leovi, who's a journalist at the Los Angeles Times. And it was about homicide in South Los Angeles and how the state treats murder of young, mostly black men, mostly poor. It it treats those lives as dispensable in the lack of investigative resources that are committed to solving those homicides or homicides. It's a term that they have for people who just get shot. You know, all they get is maimed or disabled uh, with a bullet. You know, it's an homicide if you get shot and you don't die and you're just in a wheelchair or have a colostomy bag. You know, those shootings that that kill or maim and injure, and the lack of investigative resources that are committed to to solving those crimes and to bringing justice to them sends a very, very clear message about the lack of value our society places on black lives, which is just as pernicious pernicious as police-involved killings, if not more so because of its greater scale. And so justice means that if we value black lives, we need to tell the truth about the many ways our society takes those lives or devalues them, and that our criminal justice system has said black lives don't matter, especially if they're young, especially if they're poor, especially if they're uh, male, and especially if they're taken at a hand of another black person. And that disgusts me. That disgusts me. And, And so the cry is, say their names, Freddie Gray. Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, George Floyd. And the list keeps growing. 
Yes, say those names. But what about the names that we are not going to say? On May 31st, Chicago, I love Chicago, had its deadliest day in over six decades. 18 people on May 31st were murdered. And scores more shot, almost 60, 70 shot in a mere 24 hours. And so as a society, I want us to say those names too. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I'm saying say them too. Not instead of, but too. It's not an either or. It's a both and. So Gregory Lewis, Daniel Jones, Angelo Bronson, John Tiggs, Laraza Daniels, and Keishanae Bolden, say those names too. Those were all young black lives taken in Chicago on one day. They matter. You can read, uh, Chicago Sun-Times did a write-up, just little paragraphs about who these people were, how people remembered them. It will break your heart. So the truth is this, that police as sworn agents of the state to whom we have given great power to exercise on our behalf, they must be held to account when that power is wielded unlawfully, and they must use that power much more wisely and much more constructively. And they must improve how they police people of color. To me, the research shows that that is an indisputable fact. And the truth is that if you are young and you are black and you are poor, the state needs to commit resources to bring justice when those lives are taken by homicidal violence by fellow citizens, just as much as if, God forbid, something like that were to happen to my own child. That's the truth. That's the truth. Justice is courage. Now, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is what happens when you're afraid, but you do something anyway. Courage is all throughout Bible, the Bible. Courage is Nathan confronting King David after the whole Bathsheba scandal and getting David to condemn himself and then saying to David, you are the man. Courage is, is Esther going before the Persian king Xerxes and pleading that he stop a genocide of the Jewish people and that he repeal an unjust law. Courage is Daniel refusing to obey the edict issued by Nebuchadnezzar that forbade anyone from praying to anyone or anything other than the emperor himself for 30 days. And Daniel refused to cease praying to his God even if it meant being thrown into the lion's den. And so courage means speaking against injustice. It means acting against injustice. It means examining our own complicity or participation in injustice. Courage means being to admit when you were wrong and to say that you're sorry. Courage means being willing to be a dissenting voice. And courage, it's in high demand, but short supply. And so God grant us courage. Justice is costly. If you want to pursue justice, if you want to work for justice, it's going to cost you something. And notice I said you because a lot of times we're okay if justice is pursued if someone else pays the cost, right? Not in my backyard. NIMBYism is rife in every single aspect of society. And right now I want to be honest about something. Saying Black Lives Matter literally right now will cost you nothing. You know it won't because all the brands are saying it. You know, Gushers, 
sent out a tweet saying, Gushers wouldn't be gushers without the black community and your voices. We will be working with Fruit by the Foot on creating spaces that amplify that. We see you. We stand with you. Gushers and Fruit by the Foot are saying this. What does that exactly mean? What is it going to cost them? Now, justice is going to cost you money. It's going to cost you safety and security. It's going to cost you in your property values. It's going to cost you when it comes to the school that you send your kids to. You know, are you willing to move into a less safe neighborhood? Are you willing to send your kids to a less prestigious school? Are you willing to allow multifamily housing in your neighborhood? I mean, God forbid, a fourplex gets built on your block. Are you willing even to question your political priors and to be heterodox? Are you willing to do that? If not, then you want justice on the cheap. And if you truly believe in justice, it's not just going to cost you something, it's going to cost you everything, your life. What does Jesus say? If anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves daily, take up the cross, and follow me. Which leads to my last point. And for me, this is the most important point of all. It's that justice is incarnational. John says in in, in the prologue of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. In the message, Eugene Peterson says, uh, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Justice is incarnational. Justice is proximity. Justice is Jesus moving into the neighborhood, right? The eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the most holy trinity, putting on flesh and blood, taking on, in in the words of the Apostle Paul, the form of a slave. Justice requires proximity. We, We cannot do justice. We cannot work for justice if we keep people at arm's length and far away. We can't do justice if we're not willing to get our hands dirty and the shoals of our shoes worn out. If we want justice to roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, we're going to have to cross some boundaries in Jesus' name. Because that's what Jesus did. He came to tear down the dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile, right? To tear the curtain that separated a sinful humanity and a holy and just God. And through his work on the cross, Jesus brings justice, right? He brings justification, which is itself a legal term that means being declared in the right, a.k.a. righteous, a.k.a. just. The cross itself is a work of divine justice to bring us back together again. And so we cannot have justice without Jesus, and we cannot have justice without the cross, and we cannot have, the justice, cannot have justice without repentance, we cannot have justice without forgiveness, we cannot have justice without reconciliation, we cannot have justice without sanctification, we cannot have justice without Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that every image of justice is perfectly combined and expressed. He's the king and the kingdom in one. He's the lyrics to God's song and the reason for singing. He is beautiful. He's the truth. He offers perfect worship. He is the perfect and final sacrifice. He is courage, drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin and injustice to its dregs. He paid the ultimate price in his own life, and he did the work of reconciliation, work which he has handed off to us. In Jesus, God moved into the neighborhood 
And if we want to work together with him for justice, we need him to move into our hearts and into our church as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for this panoply of images that capture our imagination about your heart for justice for this world. And so, God, we pray that it would roll down like mighty waters and flow like an ever-flowing stream. And God, where our hearts and our lives have become dry and brittle and broken, we pray that through your Spirit's power, new life, new fruit, new energy would break forth. And Lord God, we pray that before us, we would always have the beautiful images that are contained in your word and that draw us forth toward your kingdom. Amen.